I'd seen some cool demos around Unreal Engine and just kind of doing some stuff that made me as a developer sit back and think, wow, like I'm used to looking at web pages and thinking, I know how that was built. I know where the sleight of hand is in that. I know where it works. And I remember looking at that first Unreal demo running Asm.js in Firefox and being like, this breaks the laws of physics to me and I have 20 something years of experience as a web developer. Welcome to episode two of the Browser Tech Podcast. For this episode, I sat down with Andrew and Eric of Prospective, a data analysis and visualization platform that stands out as particularly ambitious in its use of WebAssembly. A quick announcement before we begin. If you happen to be in New York City on March 7th, we're hosting an in-person BrowserTech NYC event. Check the show notes or browsertech.com for a registration link. Let's dive right in. That works. Sweet. Um, great. So I'm here with Andrew and Eric of Prospective. To, to get started, I, I'd love to hear about the backstory of how you got to work on what you're working on. Andrew and I met many moons ago in a financial technology startup where we were trying to do real-time bond pricing. So we were ingesting large amounts of data real-time, some streaming, some static, and dumping into a black box and trying to spit out thousands of updates to the browser every couple seconds. Now, this is back in 2010, 2011. So browser technology, especially targeting kind of finance and some you know Fortune 500 type of institutions, we're using Internet Explorer 6. So the browser just fell over, couldn't do it. And so one of the things we were challenged with was like we had to shift a little bit. We ended up building kind of a native desktop app, actually, frankly, just to handle the performance. But one of the interesting things that came out of it was even just from a data cleaning perspective, so part of my team at the time, we were ingesting streaming data. Some of it was incomplete. We were ingesting reference data. Some of it was incorrect. And so garbage in, garbage out into our algorithm. And one of the internal tools that we built to frankly kind of explore and clean the data was relatively simple in that, like, just show us everything we know about a particular bond, show us everything we know about a particular security. Where are the outliers? Is the outlier correct or is it wrong? Go edit the data, rinse and repeat. It was we actually had a little bit of traction from some of our clients. So like we're less interested in kind of the real-time piece and I'm interested in like this visualization tool. So fast forward a little bit, Andrew spent a good chunk of time at, you know, major bank that had almost the reverse challenge or hypothesis where they were building many, many bespoke desktop apps to handle large amounts of data. Yeah. So I went to JP Morgan around 2015. You know, I had had some experience with web applications in the financial industry, specifically around startups in New York. And JP Morgan, as well as, you know, most other big investment banks were going through a transition of their internal tooling from an era where they were building desktop applications for traders who were sitting on high-powered workstations in a trading desk in a physical office, which sounds kind of crazy in 2023 to retail devices, to mobile phones and web applications. And they were really struggling with this. They had they, they had already been big tech organizations kind of building these desktop applications for decades. And then suddenly they're being asked to completely retool how they build things and, and how their culture works effectively. Part of it was the technology choices they made, but like, I don't want to, I don't want to pretend that these are dumb people or they can't learn or something like that. It has nothing to do with that. It's just an entirely new domain and they have to kind of relearn things from the ground up in some case. Uh, but it was also kind of a very natural process of like the tooling that they had had for desktop applications yielded the user experiences that their users then became accustomed to. 
being able to stream a lot of data and do kind of arbitrary querying and processing it, leveraging very expensive physical machines that were sitting literally directly under their keyboards. So, you know, they wanted these user experiences, they were used to them, they thought of their business domain in the context of those high-powered user experiences, and they were just struggling to comprehend concepts like pagination and, you know, loading indicators and things like that they had just never seen before. These are hard problems, they're solvable, but they're hard. And they're especially hard at scale when you have so many kind of, you know, small teams making lots and lots of data apps like a big data company makes, which was one of the first problems we noticed that we thought WebAssembly might be a really good fit for. When WebAssembly was announced, the banks, anybody who spends a lot of money in technology is always looking for the an opportunity to get a leg up on the competition. And the thing that initially picked my interest about WebAssembly was just that we were working in an environment where we needed to target the web, and we had a ton of C++ code that we had already written and embedded in production. And that just seemed like an opportunity we couldn't ignore. I culturally, during this transition, so many you know, very smart senior technologists had come to me with some of the dumbest ideas I've ever heard to bring their technology platforms that they'd been developing to the web. Ideas like, you know, deploy an ActiveX plugin for bank clients in 2014, or build a custom Chrome plugin, or fork Chromium and make a JP Morgan version branded of Chromium, or, you know, build an Electron app or something and deploy it like that, which doesn't sound crazy, except like if you're experts in desktop applications and you're pointing to web to get away from desktop applications and then you're making your clients download Electron, kind of defeats the practice. Anyway, we saw WebAssembly as an opportunity at that at that point to just, like, we didn't know what the capabilities of it were. I'd seen some cool demos around Unreal Engine and just kind of doing some stuff that made me as a developer sit back and like, wow, like, I'm used to looking at web pages and thinking, I know how that was built. I know what the, I know where the sleight of hand is in that. I know where it works. And I remember looking at that first Unreal demo running Asm.js and Firefox and being like, how the hell did they do this? It's like, this. Yeah. Like this is, this breaks the laws of physics to me. And I have 20 something years of experience as a web developer. Yeah. We smelled an opportunity, but we didn't really know what to do with it to start with. Um, we wanted to experiment with it and see if there was some sort of opportunity to solve some of the problems we were facing. And one of the very first things we tried was, you know, what if we started by just trying to take that application experience and just run it in a browser without, you know, without worrying about what it's going to look like or how it's going to act and to see where we are, we could start to try to unlock the power of this technology or to start to see if there's any opportunity for us to leverage it to build better experiences. And we learned a lot. A lot of it didn't work and it took us years of development to really find something or an area that it really excelled at or that's something that we could specifically leverage it for that justified the additional complexity of development and you know, the fact that it's kind of a nascent technology, or at least it was at the time, and was missing a lot of features, had bugs and implementation quirks and, and all sorts of little bugs. So at first, you're mainly taking existing C++ code? Yeah. Is it? And then and trying to run that in the browser. One of the things that the, the technology group that I was working at the time had built was a, a in-memory SQL-like engine mm -hmm. architecturally very similar to something like DuckDB or SQLite written originally for Python in pure C++ and designed to run specifically designed to run on Windows 32 machines so less than four gigs of RAM on a trader's machine mm -hmm. specifically to power blotters data grids that had real-time ticking information uh, and the queryability so that a trader could 
you know, dive deep into the blotter and understand how, you know, information was affecting some reviews they were saying at the top level. And, you know, we knew this technology worked. We knew it solved a real problem. We knew it was being powered for a lot of the applications we were trying to port. Um, and, you know, we didn't really have a clear idea of what the architectural advantage is at the time. So we were just kind of, you know, we looked at a database and said like, hey, database is a perfect technology for WebAssembly. Doesn't touch a disk, doesn't touch a network, doesn't touch a screen. Um, doesn't do anything except you put data in and you take data out of it. It's it's like a pure function and and, and program form. And in, in terms of responsibilities of this database, it, is it like filtering and aggregation in real time? Is that sort of the... Yeah. So nobody pulled, you know, a SQL reference definition off of Wikipedia or something like that and followed it. It was more like, you know, the features were kind of added on incrementally over time as they were demanded. It kind of evolved into something that has more OLAPy features than a traditional SQL database and less... SQL features. Um, I, I referred to its design at the time as a fixed function pipeline and owed to OpenGL pipelines where it doesn't have a query planner or anything like that. Doesn't support subselects, doesn't support joins, uh, but has really good live query performance. It can, it can instantiate a query and keep the incremental calculations in memory such that updates can be lazily computed. If our task was just build this training application, we never would have reached for this technology. Our task was help come up with a strategy to deal with this cultural problem that we had in technology. When we built this, you know, we didn't come out with a winning product immediately, but what we did come out with very quickly was a realization that once the data was in the browser, we could process it very, very fast with this technology. There were substantial performance improvements immediately that we saw in just linearly processing data, filtering it, pivoting it, doing those types of data transformations on it. We could see the performance impact of that immediately. So it sounds like there's more pieces here that were that went on. And the, you moved the database engine to Wasm, but then the whole data flow, the UI, was that all then built from Scotty? Yeah, it was. So once we had the engine working, we, through an unrelated story, we had the opportunity to open source the project. And the, the firm's interest in open sourcing it was technology legitimacy. I mean, earnest technology legitimacy, right? They have a lot of very, very expensive engineers who make really, really cool tech. And they're used to going to job fairs and being sat between Facebook and Google. And the Google engineers say, you know, hey, come work on Go and all these cool things that you know that we produce. And Facebook says, hey, come work on React and all this cool stuff. Mm -hmm. And we get to say, or JP Morgan gets to say like, hey, you get to wear a tie and we can't tell you what we work on. Mm -hmm. And they wanted, you know, people to be able to see some of these things and for various reasons, we were a good fit for that program. So, you know, they allowed us to open source the project, but open sourcing it kind of changed our incentives and, and kind of what we wanted to do. If our only goal was to deliver it internally, we probably would have been good with just a fast engine and throwing it to the wolves and said, here, go use this and we'll see how it works. But for open sourcing, we need to be a little bit careful. I was very concerned that given the goals that we wanted out of open sourcing specifically, that we didn't want to just take a big blob of C++ code that was effectively a, a very technical product and just throw it out on the internet and rely on the name of the company to carry it to to prominence. Mm -hmm. JP Morgan or any firm can suffer a lot of reputational damage from doing that incorrectly or from, you know, publishing that their software is crap. So we wanted to make sure that we were publishing a high quality product, a complete product, and we wanted to make sure that people got it. Mm -hmm. We needed a complete end-to-end -end product where a user could, or a potential user could see us on social media and click on the button, see the product underneath their fingertips immediately, right? Mm -hmm. And play with it and understand the same way that, you know, you and I had that first impression seeing that Unreal demo, 
when they saw what WebAssembly did to data analytics for our product, that they got it immediately intrinsically without having to like go back and look at our benchmarks and say, huh, that is 10% faster. Good job. Um, so yeah, we built a whole UI and a bunch of other stuff. <laughs> a whole collection of software basically to make this engine work well and kind of solve the problems that we intended it to solve. One specifically I'll mention was Apache error support. I, one of the early things that we realized was like, yeah, we can we can process data really quickly once it's in the browser with the keyword being once it's in the browser. WebAssembly didn't help us at the time get the data any faster. And when we started, you know, trying to push the limits of what this engine could do by loading more and more and more data into it, benchmarking it, we quickly realized that we were, you know, the time that we were spending just parsing and downloading the data was going up and up and up way faster than we could actually stress out the engine. So Apache Arrow had just recently been released. We knew the pedigree of the maintainers and we thought like, you know, th these kind of projects get released a lot, but these developers are serious and we know where they sit in the ecosystem and we know the kind of technologies they've produced in the past. And more importantly, you know, what they're producing right now, it's not some space case, like, you know, crazy wild idea. It's a very, very conservative design for something that is obviously needed. Uh, there's a little risk in, in this. So we pulled the Apache Arrow library. We started with the uh, TypeScript library. They had a TypeScript library that they, it was just a, a completely standalone implementation of Apache Arrow for TypeScript. We didn't get a significant performance advantage over it. Uh, we found, you know, there was a, it obviously wasn't the center of their attention. They were mainly focused on C++, and I think this was Arrow 0.12 or something like that. Um, but, you know, the Arrow payload sizes versus a CSV weren't substantially different. They were maybe a little smaller in some cases. The parsing and, you know, downloading it wasn't that bad, but then parsing it with the TypeScript library and then taking the parsed version, which was then JSON, in TypeScript and loading it into our WASM engine we weren't really seeing much of a performance impact in that. Um, so this is going from from JSON parsed by TypeScript. Yeah. So so the path was bytes from the network. Yep. We'd get bytes in Apache Arrow format. We'd accumulate them in an array buffer in memory. So this is V two. Like V V one was the JSON. Yeah. Okay. JSON text direct, and then we would use mscript and mbind to generate bindings to read the JSON data structure cell at a time into WASM, and that was super slow. Attempt two was use Apache Arrow TypeScript library to read an array buffer representing an arrow in what was IPC format at the time, but they renamed Feather. Reading that into TypeScript, so the TypeScript library took the array buffer and turned it into an in-memory JavaScript object because it's a TypeScript library and that's what its output is for. And then we used the existing in-memory, you know, mscript and bindings to turn that in-memory JavaScript object into Perspective's internal format. So this was coming over the wire in Arrow, yep. then passing it to uh, to the WebAssembly side through it's an array of, of row objects. So like the slowest way you can think to do Yeah, of, of JSON, essentially, or you're just yeah. doing a call every, yeah. Yeah, so I, the only reason I'm not using the word JSON is because it, it never got rendered to text. So it is just a JavaScript array of objects in memory, which is different from how we were loading it previously, where it had the text representation of JSON that then had to be parsed into a JavaScript object. And you know what? I've been a web developer for a long time, but I never sat down to actually benchmark how much time your browser spends parsing 
things like HTML and JavaScript and JSON. And you don't notice it when you're building low-performance applications, but once we'd unlocked a database engine that could handle parsing data like that, and we started stressing other pieces of the system, it shows up very promptly. Yeah. Yeah, this whole, the, the moving data between JavaScript and WebAssembly, I think is one area that like is kind of boring. Like nobody's excited. Yeah, But I, I agree. think there's so well, much left on the table there to improve performance. There, there's so many copies over the boundary. And so I, so that was V2. Do you have, uh, is that what you, yeah. So there's another. Version. Yeah. So what we do today is Chef was working on my team. Tim Pei at the time took the Apache Arrow C++, act, the actual reference C++ library and through villainy and an entire case of Red Bulls managed to port it over to WebAssembly. Not all of it. But the parts we needed to read the IPC format in binary and never have to touch JSON. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the path now is Apache Arrow, the library, can itself read CSV, has a CSV parser built in. Mm-hmm. And there is a JSON parser also built in based on rapid JSON versus another fast C++ and memory parser. So we support all three of those formats, but we're using Apache Arrow internally to parse mm-hmm. all of them. So let's just focus on the fast pass, which is Apache Arrow. Arrow format in binary. We take it off the wire in JavaScript. We create an array buffer in JavaScript. It is a single contiguous block of memory that we have not turned into a JavaScript object. It's just an array buffer of the accumulated network bytes. We then tell the C++ code to allocate that many bytes in the heap. We return a pointer back to JavaScript, which is a number index into the heap memory, and we copy it directly from the array buffer input. Yeah, that's what it, you're calling, you're exposing malloc, calling malloc yep. from JavaScript side, that whole dance to get data into WebAssembly. Yep. And at that point, we have a uh, contiguous array on the C++ heap that is the entire array buffer we do, or this is the entire arrow file. And then we do all the coding and parsing internally. Now, internally as in on the WebAssembly side. Yeah, on the WebAssembly side. So it never sees JavaScript, never touches the JavaScript heap, doesn't create an object, doesn't allocate anything on JavaScript heap, pure WebAssembly. Um, it is a historical coincidence. So original perspective development started, I don't actually know the date, but a long time ago, let's say. Certainly many years pre-Arrow, uh, many years pre-2015, um, before I was an employee at, at JPM. And... By sheer coincidence, perspective internally has a data type called the data table, which is its two-dimensional, columnar, statically typed uh, data structure it uses for intermediate data and the background tables and things like that. And it is nearly identical to Arrow in terms of its memory format, just coincidentally. Um, there's not that many ways to skin a byte cat, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. So there is a copy step internally where we take the Apache Arrow in memory and one column at a time, we copy it into perspective. Generally, we are just taking the data in every arrow column and just moving it into a perspective column. And there are a couple little tiny edge cases we have to deal with where like their dictionary encoding is slightly different than the one the perspective used. Well, yeah, back to what you were saying. WebAssembly is really, really fast. WebAssembly is not a magic new compiler that takes one plus one and makes it a hundred million times faster than JavaScript code. The opportunity that WASM gives you is the ability to not just turn off the garbage collector and things like that, but go below the safety restrictions of how those things work, at least on the WebAssembly side, and do tricks around allocation where you just don't have the opportunity to do those things readably in JavaScript. Things like being able to, you know, iterate through an array without heap allocations, without memory, and kind of take references to structs and things like that, and just be very careful about how you process large amounts of memory. Mm -hmm. 
those are opportunities for optimization that your typical JavaScript engineer just doesn't even know to reach for because the interpreter doesn't allow them. Cool. So to kind of take inventory of the stack we've talked about so far. So you've got this database engine, kind of headless database engine, then you built a UI on it. It's compiled to compiled to WebAssembly with MScript in still. It's a C++ code base. And let's talk about the UI. Because the UI is, is rendered from within the WebAssembly side. Yes. So originally it was JavaScript. We went through a couple of generations of that and then uh, ported it to Rust about two years ago. We chose a web framework called U, mm -hmm. Y-E-W, which is basically a, a React port to Rust. We knew Perspective was kind of a project that we wanted to invest time at at that point and that we wanted to grow and kind of build into, you know, a, a leading analytics platform, the visualization platform. And... I strongly felt that the bottleneck at that time was charting and the front end space for that, like we could get a hundred million rows of database, but we couldn't plot a hundred million points on a, on a screen, at least not without locking your browser for 10 seconds, which is unacceptable for the perception of performance if not for performance itself. I wasn't trying to attack that problem head on, but we were looking for strategies to orient the code base around a performance mindset and to make it easy for a team of developers or whoever we'll expect in the future to make the right decisions. Under you try to set up the architecture so that we can extend it in a performance conscious way. At the same time, I didn't really have the appetite to sit down and rebuild something completely from scratch in a paradigm that I didn't understand about. But I really wanted to get something working. And I thought you was a good compromise between being able to move the architecture completely into WebAssembly and use as little JavaScript as possible. And then once it was there, we could start incrementally replacing out flow parts and parts that actually impacted performance without having to first change the architecture. So we reported the entire front end over to you. We don't run the engine in the browser process. We run it a web worker. And when the UI is interacting with the engine, it's sending messages across a traditional web worker API. All the data lives in the web worker, the processing happens in the web worker, all of the use happen in the web worker. The only data that's transferred across is what actually needs to be transferred. And that's because the web worker can't talk to the DOM, right? The... Yes, the web worker can't access the DOM. Off-screen canvas is, is one option. Um, Off-screen canvas allows you to basically do a double buffer, which is cool, but it's still just two threads, right? You have one thread running your UI, one thread running your drawing to your canvas. And drawing a canvas is a popular thing for developers to reach for when they're when they're trying to improve rendering performance in a browser because when you make a quick demo and it does perform way better than hitting the DOM. And developers look at that and go, Wow, that's a thousand times faster. We're gonna do that. And then they spend six months building on top of that canvas solution. They end up with something slower than they start because they basically reprogram the entire browser in the canvas. Mm -hmm. If you hit detection, it hovers, it clicks, and all those other factors and accessibility add up and they build those things under canvas. They end up with a browser implementation, but in JavaScript surrendered to a canvas. Yeah. So tell me about uh, Prospective then as a company. It's a tool for, I mean, this will sound reductivist, but it's a tool for making dashboards that runs in the browser. It's a tool for making dashboards, but it is a single tool for making data products is the way that I would phrase it. We want to bring that veil back down the stack and incorporate more of the aspects of how you got your data into your product in the first place. Basically making it a place where you can go to a platform, bring in your data, but do all of the parts that are involved with, you know, raw data in the wild and making it presentable and viewable and telling a story with it. And that's not just picking the colors or setting the axis widths or how the ticks work, right? It is aligning it. it it's uh, simplifying it. It's grouping it. It's summarizing it. 
It's identifying outliers and annotating it with the information that you want to convey. Um, it's filtering it down to the pieces that you think are interesting. It's segmenting it along the dimensions around the story that you want to tell. And it brings a data science environment based on Pyodide. Pyodide is CPython, the CPython interpreter, mm -hmm. and a collection of data science libraries and their C extensions recompiled to WebAssembly VM scripting. We wanted a natural way for analysts to be able to, you know, when they get to the edges of what our tool provides, we want it to be naturally extendable with more sophisticated tools, specifically programming tools. So now you've got Pyodide running in the browser, but originally pre-prospect of the company, when you're just working with this open source component, the Python side was just server side. Yeah. So, I mean, I... Our technology vocabularies fail us at this point because of all of the weird stuff you can do. We are running a Python server in a web worker as if it was a web server. And it allows you to take a dashboard or some data you fetched out the internet and say, you know, I really want to, you know, project this colon filter on this or calculate a linear regression or do something the perspective doesn't do. How is an end user interacting with this? Like at the Python level, is it sort of notebook style? So, uh, yeah, Jupyter Lite is Jupyter Lab and the Jupyter Lab ecosystem roughly ported to run Pedless or to run the, the client library and to simulate the server library in JavaScript using WebLookers and Pyodide as backend. I saw so many analysts who would tell me like, you know, I'm not a programmer. That's why I love Looker. And then we'd be like, okay, cool. Show us like a Looker project you did. And they'd be like, cool. Here's a bar graph that I made in Looker, except it didn't start putting labels in the right place. So here's 11 pages of Looker ML I wrote in order to customize it. And here's the 40 Looker ML tutorials I had to read. And I'd be looking at that stuff and be like, you're not only a programmer, you're a programmer with an iron stomach because I wouldn't, I would never put up with this. Mm -hmm. This is terrible. Python is a real programming language. It's not a hack. It's not something that we crammed in on the side just to get people out of our faces. It is a real programming environment that allows real honest extensibility of a platform. I, I still feel like I'm missing a piece of the uh, architecture here. So you've got Python PyDide running in a web worker. Mm -hmm. You've got the, the database engine running in a web worker. And you've got the UI. These are all running in different web workers. Yeah. You have a UI with seven visualizations. Each one is a query. Those queries are projected across three different tables. The three different tables from the UI's point of view are interfaces, right? They're client connections to some table running in another process. Mm -hmm. We can run those in web workers. We've always been able to do that. We just download the engine and load the data in Arrow and run it. But because we also had, we already had a Python library and it already implemented the same API as our web worker. And what we used to be able to do is run a Python process on the server, run the UI in the browser, and you could either have, you know, every time you scrolled it down in a grid, it's sending a message to the server, which gets calculated and sends the delta down. And when you create a new view, you're sending a query to be processed on the server and the server accumulates the materialized view as you're interacting with it. Well, that API that uses communicate is the exact same API that the web worker uses. So when, you know, when Pyodide was developed and we started experimenting with it, it was very, very easy for us to take our server Python library and just run it in Pyodide. It has the same interface as a web worker version of the engine. It's the same code. It's just being accessed through a Python interpreter. So there's no performance degradation. It's roughly the same architecture with a lot more links in the chain, but not something that you would notice once it's actually working. And it allows a very natural extension point where if you want to say like, hey, the default of just taking the data off the wire, sticking it in the engine and visualizing it isn't enough. I want to customize part of the pipeline. You now have Python where you can go in and write Python code in your browser, have it process that data feed as it's coming in optionally if you choose to do so. And from the perspective of our engine, 
And from our front end, it doesn't matter that Python is in the middle. I see. So it's sort of Python allows you to kind of stick in a middleware that's user-defined that processes the data coming out, yep. out of the wire before it enters the rest of the system. I do so in a way that is like shockingly performant in a way that, you know, we're not, there would be a lot of ways to do this where it's effectively a demo. And we're saying like, look at how cool this would be if it didn't absolutely, if it didn't eat 11 CPUs and burn your battery. This actually works and it's quite fast. It's not as fast as native Python, but we're talking about, you know, interactive applications. We're not talking about things that are training LLMs or after, you know, eat up 75 GPUs. This isn't a way to stop using server Python. This is a way for your analysts and your programmers and your data scientists to use a platform that they're already comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And imagine with real-time streaming data, it either works or it doesn't in terms of performance. Like either you're processing data as quickly as it's coming in. Perspective was really good at throttling. The internal engine doesn't process data synchronously, right? You push data into it, it sits in a queue, it waits for a free tick, and then it updates. Mm -hmm. The update step is a lot more expensive than the queuing step. And the more we can queue up, the more efficient we're using that update step for. I mean, perspective when it renders, when it's connected to a UI, it knows that a UI is connected to it. And the UI measures how long the engine takes to process queries. Mm-hmm. And it throttles its own responses or its, its own query basically to the engine. So the idea is there's obviously a limit. Mm-hmm. Everybody's familiar with what the limit looks like in a browser, right? If you're more data at it, more data, more data, more data, scale, scale, scales, it's totally fine until it doesn't. And then you hit a wall and it goes straight to zero, right? It's the it's the death loop. Once you've saturated an entire thread, mm-hmm. there's no place to go. And more information just backs up and backs up and backs up mm-hmm. exponentially until you run out of memory and it crashes. Perspective can throttle down. So the idea is it's effectively working synchronously. And then when it starts to back up, it starts to trade update frames for processing. So you might be streaming updates once every millisecond. It'll start by rendering once every millisecond, but as the table gets larger and as it detects that it's running out of CPU, it'll start to render once every five milliseconds, once every 10, 20, 100, whatever it has to do in order to keep up. So it's not necessarily driven by like a request animation frame or or it is? Well, I mean, it uses request animation frame internally to grab the frame when it wants to render, but it's a pervasively asynchronous process where you know, a lot of synchronization programs to make sure that we are, you know, when an update comes in, that we process it, that all the other ones wait, and then when the next update is ready, we process everything that's in the queue and keep things consistent. It's on there we put a lot of time into making sure that the pipeline degraded gracefully, mm-hmm. that it was always up to date, even if it rendered more slowly. That's really important for finance, right? You can't run a model all day and looked at it and then find out at the end of the day that the prices you're looking at are actually an hour in the past because you've been slowly lagging behind all day. Um, Perspective will just, the frame rate will slow down, but the data you will be seeing will be up to date when it renders and it's still quite fast. So working with WebAssembly, what are the pain points right now? The standard is moving a lot slower than I expected it to. I don't get the impression that the founders of the WebAssembly initiative, the Googles and et cetera, are as interested in the technology now as they were when they when they introduced it. It's grown a life of its own among hackers and experimenters and people looking for other places, but you know, Google is looking to sell faster ads and, and build <laughs> not the kind of like crazy hundred meg like you know, platform things that people are starting to build on it now. 
for what we're doing as a company and as an open source project, we're well aware of what the limitations of WebAssembly are. So we are building a product that takes advantage of what it can do right now. We're not limited by any of these things. But the potential of WebAssembly, I think, could be a lot more if some of these things were were addressed. I know Heartbleed, Spectre, the timing attack mm. classes that were discovered around the time that WebAssembly was introduced really threw a monkey wrench in some of the more aggressive features associated with WebAssembly just because they became security goals. Mm -hmm. Even Shared Array Buffer was... Is currently behind a special content flag that has to be provided by the server in order for it to route out of the browser, which is no problem for us because we're an enterprise product, right? We support multi-threading until the cows come home, but it is a huge problem for our open source project. You have to build a bespoke server that supports these headers that host your code in a very specific way. Otherwise, you won't be able to use these features. And it's hard because, you know, it's different bytecode. So you have to build multiple versions of the library and have runtime detection to figure out which one to download and all sorts of complex stuff. Anyway, I'll tell you what's not been a blocker that I think the community complains about a lot is the interface with, with the DOM. Mm -hmm. This was quite slow originally in, in WebAssembly, but it's actually gotten a lot faster recently with, you know, using text encoder and data views and stuff like that to transfer string values back and forth is a lot better now. Mm -hmm. I'm unaware that the WebAssembly committee or anybody involved in actually the WebAssembly spec ever had any interest ever in building out like a full DOM model or an IDL model or something like for WebAssembly. So it seemed like a completely impractical goal. And, you know, we're currently using you, which touches the DOM a lot. And that's going over that boundary with Wasm Bindgen. Um, and it, you know, it generates a lot of JavaScript blue code for sure. Um, but I've built a lot of React applications. I've built a lot of JavaScript applications and our new application is very fast. We get sub two millisecond rendering, basically no matter what I do to it on our application, which is you know, quite complicated and does a, a lot of custom rendering, a lot of icons, lots of data uh, reactivity on the page at the same time and quite good. For what we want to use it for, we're trying to get away from the DOM, not because it's slow, but because, or sorry, yes, because it's slow, but because we specifically want to do very, very bespoke rendering with it. And then, mm -hmm. like, we don't want to touch that. So, you know, having a faster way to move divs around on the page or something like that both seems an impractical goal and something that, like, I'm certainly not asking for. And I don't think a lot of the people who are deep in the WebAssembly side ask. Um, I would like to see more progress on the component model. I'd love to see more progress on things like, you know, uh, WASM64 or something that I'm very interested in because as a yeah, as data processing company, I really want to be able to have, you know, four gig in theory, but in practicality, two or less is what you can actually allocate. Um, and while that's, that is still hundreds of millions of rows of, you know, float data or something like that, it's not, that's still a lot of data for complex string data or big tables or something like that. We just need more. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, multi-threading, obviously we would like to see. So do you find that the, the memory limitations is a blocker versus like, cause I could imagine just sort of making the server, the source of truth for the data and streaming as needed, but you've taken the architecture that you want to move all the data to the client. It's not that we want to move all of it to the client. It's that the client is more power that we can use to build a better application. Mm -hmm. And I want to squeeze every cycle out of that opportunity that we possibly can. And even if we left the whole data model on the server, you're still drawing the pixels on the client. And if you want to have a fast render, you're still, you're not going to be drawing the pixels on there. If you want to scale horizontally, you're not going to be drawing the pixels on the server. Mm -hmm. Right now, 
the opportunity to differentiate ourselves from our competitors and from other people. And, and we're not going to win this market by doing exactly what our competitors do slightly differently, right? Mm -hmm. We really, I feel we need technologically to focus on the parts of the product that we can do uniquely better than other places. And that is for now, it is in the disconnected state. It is in the state where we're not using any cloud compute. How much can we squeeze out of this architecture? Um, but that's not because I don't think it's important or because real workflows don't require that. It's because that's our differentiator right now as a small company, as a scrappy company trying to blaze a path and show why our approach to this very crowded market is different. Is offline support something that you think about or do you imagine a world like when people are using your software, they're constantly online? I love the idea of offline software. And like in theory, perspective is doesn't need a server to run. So it's off, other than the fact that it runs in a browser, it's local, it's offline as a web application can really be. However, in the context of data analytics and data science, there's no real workflow that just involves your computer. There's been a couple situations of no clients, but just some discovery we've done, like telco and one was in defense, where there's these situations where they're not always on, but there's still large data being produced. I say locally in like a very or a cell tower was the example, yeah. <laughs> or like a submarine, frankly. I don't know how niche those things are, but in those specific situations, it was almost like a very local network type of situation as opposed to touching the broader world or even touching my broader internet type of situation. Yeah, it, you know, we have an enterprise app that you can download and run on your computer with the network turned off. You can load local CSV files and yeah. transformations and stuff like that. All those things work, and I think that stuff is important. But I think it's important. I think the local part is important for the user experience. I don't like to wait for something to run. I don't have to worry that I'm on a train, I'm going into a tunnel, and my chart's going to stop working. Well, it doesn't. Um, you can get that local first user experience more than it is that, like, we adamantly think the experience should be local. I don't think that. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like a few years ago, even the justification for our offline use was an airplane or a train or something like that. And these days, it's so. Those things are have internet so ubiquitously now that it's almost like I hear people want to use it in the field or people, I mean, a submarine is an extreme case. I, I know the, those examples sound ridiculous, but when I hear a client say those, I, I hear a coded language, right? What they're really saying is, is when I use an app that the processing is happening on the server, I can tell. I can tell from the user experience that it's slow, that I click on a button, that a loading indicator comes up, or that sometimes it doesn't work because something happened on the network that prevented that heavyweight transaction from occurring. And they know that, and they might express it as, well, what if I was on a tunnel? <laughs> or what if I was on an airplane? Yeah. But what they really mean is 1% of the time, this shit just doesn't work. And I know it's because of this brittle, distributed notion of, of communication at this point. Yeah. yeah, that's a really good point. If you you have maybe a network interrupt, your Wi-Fi switches to something else, and then it goes 5G to SOS, something like that. It, and it's a bad experience. And the next day I logged back in and my session was deleted. So it just recreates everything because I was paying hourly for this cloud resource to run my model that I could have been running on my local in terms of, uh, from a technical point of view, are you doing much with local storage, OPFS, ICB? Our enterprise application has an app that also acts as a bridge. So it's kind of like a plugin that once you've installed it, our browser can use it to proxy out of the sandbox and pull to data sources that a browser normally can't connect to. The agent doesn't have a bunch of data adapters in it because the WebAssembly can speak you know, native ODBC, you can speak, you can read protobufs, it can speak all these binary protocols. It just can't open a socket 
<laughs> so in order to provide connectivity to certain types of data services, we have a proxy you can install as part of the app that allows the website to connect to buyers that the browser wouldn't normally be able to connect to. Local storage at the time when we were doing the open source project was a little bit limited for the size of data that we wanted to pull down. Mm -hmm. And yeah, because we're focusing on trading workflows, they were really about real time and about today. Storing the data didn't really have much of, a, of an interest to us at, at the beginning. And now that we're kind of looking at corporate, you know, how do we provide value to middle tier corporate America and middle tier businesses? We, you know, most of those companies, this isn't their first rodeo. They're not looking for their like baby's first data analytics platform. They have storage, they have databases, they have APIs that they've developed internally that are proprietary. They have block storage, they have SharePoint, they have all these things. And what they're looking to buy is something that binds all of those things together and gives them a ubiquitous place to just see their data, access it, not so necessarily something to replace all of those things. Yeah. And we think about, you know, WebAssembly technology and local technology is a really, really good fit for those sorts of things because you don't have to do any integration. Yeah. You can just reach out to those data sources. That's all that I've got right now. Is there anything that you'd like people to know? We're always hiring the right people. So if any of this sounds interesting to you, WebAssembly pushing the limits of browser yep. rendering and making user experiences that make users sit back and say, wow, please contact us. That was my conversation with Andrew and Eric of Prospective. You can learn more about Prospective at prospective.co. Sign up for the BrowserTech newsletter at digest.browsertech.com. BrowserTech is brought to you by Jamsocket, the platform for running WebSocket services at scale. Learn more about Jamsocket at jamsocket.com.